Welcome to our second episode of the Goodwill Hunters Autumn Series, the NGO of the future. In most countries, there's simply too many NGOs chasing too few dollars, all generally using the same business model in a sector experiencing declining fundraising returns at a time of escalating costs and demand. Not surprising, NGOs have struggled to find a viable business model, and this challenge has become even more difficult with the onset of COVID. In this episode, co-host Rachel Mason-Nunn and I speak with Joe Barraquette and Audette XL on how the NGO of the future should respond to this business model challenge. Joe is a distinguished professor and director of the Centre for Social Impact at Swinburne University. She is one of Australia's leading researchers of social enterprise and the social economy. Audette XL is the founder of the Adara Group and Chief Executive Officer of its Australian financial services businesses, Adara Advisors. The Adara businesses were established as for-purpose businesses with the principal objective of supporting Adara development, which is focused on improving the health and education of women, children and communities living in poverty. As always, we hope you really enjoy the episode. The world needs a vibrant civil society. International NGOs have been vocal advocates and trusted implementers for decades, but their very existence is under threat. In a rapidly changing world, how do we ensure their continuing impact and sustainability? My name is Rachel Mason-Nunn, founder of Goodwill Hunters. This series is brought to you with support from Alinea Whitelam. As a certified B Corporation, Alinea Whitelam is at home in both the for-profit and the not-for-profit sectors giving us a unique appreciation for the diversity of stakeholders that contribute to quality development. We're so glad you can join us for this important conversation on the future of the NGO this autumn. Joe and Audette, thanks for joining the podcast. The former Global Head of Strategy for Oxfam recently wrote in an excellent paper that NGOs must either transform, die well, or die badly. May I ask both of you, was he right? I think we're living in a world where we talk in binaries too much. You know, yes, there's no question, you know, that transformation and evolution in the sector is not only happening, not only uh, incredibly important and not only the way of the future, but I don't think we should throw the baby out with the bathwater. There's some fantastic pieces of traditional philanthropy um, and traditional NGO structures that we must not lose in our quest to evolve and progress. So I don't think it's quite the binary that, um, uh, that, that that saying sets out. I don't know if you agree with that or not, Joe. I think we're in a fierce agreement around that, Audette. I think uh, while recognising that, you know, rhetorical strategies are important, making statements about things is an important thing to do to catch attention, one of the problems with those kinds of statements is they're not, they're not uh, embedded in context. So um, I think that's really an important aspect of it. I'm a great believer in uh, the not-for-profit sector as part of civil society broadly conceived as demonstrating the diversity of human aspirations. And that means that there are forms of traditional um, not-for-profit NGO uh, work that um, are going to continue to be needed and are really important. And I don't think that we should be telling, you know, the local volunteer group um, at the babysitting club or the tennis club that these things are, are redundant. Um, but I do think that what we're seeing is the emergence of different models of resourcing organisations, different um, models of governing organisations and different forms of collaboration across organisations. And that's probably where the, you know, there is really substantial um, actual change occurring and also potential for more change to add greater value. 
If I can follow up that point then, as we do see different models of resourcing emerging, what sort of emerging business models for NGOs are succeeding and, and, and which do you think are working less well? Gee, it's a good question, isn't it? In the age of COVID, I was reading a, um, a study about 2020 and there was something like 40% of NGOs in Australia who are making losses at the moment. Um, and not that I think that's necessarily a sign of success or failure. I think, um, you know, when you work in the sector, we understand that there are many, many uh, ways that we uh, gauge ourselves in terms of our um, uh, our impact, uh, our outputs and our out the outcomes that we achieve. Um, but to the question in terms of um, what's working and, and not working, um, again, gross generalisation, but I'd say that localisation is working. Um, and particularly in the space that I'm sitting in, in international development, you know, that should have been pretty obvious to people for a very long time ago. Um, but if ever there was a time to be connected to community and the communities that we serve and the beneficiaries that we're working with, um, it's now, you know, and our, 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 if you like, a trendy term, social licence to operate, our social licence to operate is coming out of the depth of our connection to community. Um, I think the other thing that I'm seeing, and I'm really interested in Joe's view on this, is the sort of social enterprise um, uh, leader um, is um, NGOs that are lucky enough to have a diverse source of, of revenue um, uh, are in a more financially stable state um, uh, than others who are, for instance, subject to the whims and the, the politics that are involved in, in government funding only. Yeah, and I mean, again, a lot of agreement with Odette. Um, I do think that uh, in terms of social enterprise models, uh, the diversity of that's really important. The other thing that I um, found very early on in my social enterprise experience some 25 years ago was that because organisations were engaged with the market, they actually also had to have much more self-reflexive, difficult conversations about whether they were doing good. So in a sense, donor-funded organisations kind of assumed that part of, the, of their um, activity, whereas when you're engaging in diverse sources of revenue creation, you actually do have to look at, well, are we meeting our mission um, otherwise those sources of revenue probably won't um, come to pass. But um, also stepping back to what Odette was saying, one thing that I've noticed with COVID is the um, uh, important role of small to medium entities. And I realise that there's other conversations, which I'm sure we'll have today, um, around um, uh, mergers and acquisitions, et cetera. But, uh, you know, in, a, in the context where our global supply chains have been at risk, uh, small to medium organisations have been essential partly because of their connection to community, but also because of their potential to collaborate with each other in place. And that has been quite a powerful and important thing. That's a really interesting point, actually, Joe, isn't it? You know, that trendy kind of theme of last year, which was pivot. Um, and, you know, if you're fleet of foot um, and um, you're an organisation that can hold culture and move fairly quickly rather than a giant behemoth, um, you know, in some ways it's much easier when we've, we're, we're operating in, a, a, you know, in a, a, a period of massive uncertainty and, you know, really economic and public health crisis for those organisations, the small and medium, to pivot, to work together, to change it up. It's, it's easier to turn the ship, if you like, unless, of course, it's led by a great leader like, like Paul Ronalds, um, who's got a big ship that he's managed to turn. Um, but, you know, again, as a generalisation, there's, there's some beauty in, in, um, in uh, you know, the smaller and medium-sized people in the space in terms of their ability to respond um, very quickly, which, of course, is what's needed at a time like this in our planet. And I don't mean to be overly romantic about that because, of course, there are some contexts in which 
um, there's real challenges for small to medium entities uh, in the sorts of um, work that we're doing and the challenges we're facing socially. Uh, one of the things I do is co-lead with uh, my colleagues at RMIT, the Australian Digital Inclusion Index, and um, that's about digital inclusion of individuals. But we also know from other research that small to medium uh, NGOs are, are, are not as digitally included as they need to be. They don't have access to the kinds of infrastructure um, that they necessarily need. So there's definitely, you know, some, some both opportunities and challenges associated with those organisations. There's lots of really good issues in those responses for us to come back to in this podcast. But before we do, I would like to ask you about the impact of the end of JobKeeper in Australia. Are we going to see an already tough environment for many NGOs becoming even more difficult? Yes, I mean, without question. Um, and a, a huge opportunity lost, in my view, not to incent increased giving um, uh, in all the different ways that that could happen, including um, additional tax incentives um, at a time when actually the not-for-profit sector and civil society is carrying the burden of much of what's actually happening with COVID. So, you know, we all know the statistics around rise in domestic violence, you know, increasing poverty um, and all the, the the aspects of that. But what are we actually seeing? We're not seeing the the um, consequent rise in funding. So, and, and certainly in the international development sector, you know, largely we've seen the opposite over years, but continuing right now, when actually, perversely, this is a time when we should be pouring money into these sectors. So, um, yes, very tough time for the sector. Um, end of JobKeeper and, and and the paltry amount, you know, um, that, that people will now be paid. We're, we're about to send, we are now sending people back into a level of penury in this country if they are unemployed, which is going, and the burden of that is going to fall very much on the not-for-profit civil civil society. Um, so, um, yep, yeah, it's, it's, um, there's, there's plenty of tough days ahead in my view. So if we have got a crisis, even if it's uneven across the NGO sector, do you think there's enough innovation occurring in the sector, especially around the NGO business model? So I think um, I, I spent a lot of time uh, observing, mapping, researching social innovation in the Australian context. And I think that there is a great deal of um, innovation going on in the sense of new and improved responses to complex problems. That said, um, going back to the resourcing issue, we don't have a strong uh, innovation appetite in this country across the board. So even at the level of commercial innovation where there's a much more immediate return to investors, um, we've, we're well behind. We know that we, you know, we, we lag the, in the OECD on uh, our innovation uh, capacity. Um, and the other thing I would say about the social innovation context is uh, uh, partly because of models of competition that have been introduced over the years and also because of resource paucity in individual organisations, a lot of these innovations are not being diffused. So there's not enough knowledge sharing. Now, of course, as a researcher, I would say that because I want you to do research, right? Um, but I actually think it's true. We're not diffusing the innovations that we should be um, as, as quickly as we can. Uh, and, um, and that's another uh, limitation to the, to the innovation um, uh, drive within the uh, NGO sector. 
I could not agree with that more. But it's sort of damned if you do, damned if you don't, right? If you're running a not-for-profit, doesn't matter which client base you're you're providing service to, because you know your number one, you're under-resourced already. So your number one job is in a crisis, deliver service at very high standard. Um, and then on top of that, people are saying, and by the way, would you all collaborate? And by the way, would you all innovate and evolve? And and I know you're sitting, people are sitting in the sector going, you know, and when am I going to sleep? And, and there is such a donor resistance um, to actually funding um, uh, what NGOs, uh, you know, and or hybrid organizations or social enterprises actually need, which is the ability to be able to pull back and actually spend time on some of these issues. So you're totally right. It's not diffused. And it's not because there isn't a huge amount of passion, knowledge and skill. It's because actually there's just a massive lack of resources. So, you know, where you put your time and your money and your energy is driven by that. Um, and until we kind of get over this hangout we have about you know, admin costs and core support funding research, you know, this stuff, I fund all this out of our businesses because I never want to debate this stuff with, with donors. I think it is such a flawed part of the model um, that there is this donor-heavy pressure on, you know, how do you cut your numbers and how much is being spent on core support and admin because that's where you actually get the ability to innovate. We know private sector companies pour hundreds of millions, billions into R&D. Um, and they involve their models. And they've got teams of people in, in, in head offices who work together on these kind of issues. And yet here's us sitting in our sector, um, you know, trying to carry, you know, to hold a huge amount of um, uh, complexity um, that impacts life. And, and yet people are, are putting pressure on about you're not knowledge sharing enough, you're not collaborating, you're not innovating. Well, you know, the answer's to me, it's clear where we have to go first on that. We've got to start resourcing it and prioritising it. So to build on that, Odette, you referred to your businesses there, which are, of course, um, structured in a really innovative way for this sector. So can you just briefly mention what led you to start Adara? And more importantly, is it replicable for others? Yeah, it's been a 23-year journey of joy and tears. Oh, my God, I've made so many mistakes. I can't even begin to tell you. <laughs> but thank God we're still standing and um, uh, and still providing service. So, um, as you know, we're a weird model of two corporate advice businesses. We're kind of the Wall Street end of the game in our businesses, and those businesses exist solely for the purpose of generating revenue to fund our international development organisation. We also, thank goodness, have these wonderful donor partners that stand with us. So, we've put about $53 million to work for people in poverty over the years. And we run our own teams and our, our own work around the world. And about 17 million of that's come from our businesses. But the key piece, I guess, if you're thinking about models is um, the businesses fund they ensure the financial viability of the organisation. So they fund all the core support, all the ab and all the research that we were just talking about. You know, we've always, so any donors, donor partners um, uh, that have stood with us, 100 cents in the dollar has gone to the work, which allow, has allowed us to build the core that we need and not debate that. Um, and um, the other thing to know about our model is we, we have a development philosophy. We never give money to a government and we never take it for a government from a government. And that's been hotly debated by many with me over the years, but that's because government aid is so politicised and we've wanted to build our work from the ground up, driven with the highest level of development integrity possible 
people, not driven by what the politics of the day tell you you should be doing. Um, so yes, and the models of the Wall Street end of the game. So it is this weird thing changing the world one investment banker at a time. Um, but you know, the social enterprise movement, which I love, you know, is is talking to to NGOs about how do you actually think about generating revenue from the brilliant skills you've got. I'm sort of on the other side of that in a way, saying, where's the money being made in society? And how do we move that across with integrity that people in need? Odette, from what you've said, it doesn't sound to me like your model is easily replicable by other NGOs because it relies on your quite unique mix of skills and networks and the different parties that you've been able to bring to the table. Is that a correct assumption? No, actually, I don't agree with that. It's interesting. It's not about whether you're an investment banker and you know, it's about it's about thinking about business skills and recognizing the business community and now looking finally they're realizing oh my god we've got to have purpose and so it's all really the model is partnering the revenue that's generated out of a business if i knew how to make biscuits god i wish i did you know that, that's another way you could you could be pouring funds across you know you look at the pledge one percent movement you look at humanitics and what they're doing you know there's there's so many different ways to do this the model is about finding the skills of business to generate revenue and ensuring that that revenue instead of being paid up to shareholders is coming across you know to service delivery for for an ngo so i do think it's replicable and actually even the investment banking piece i'm at the moment looking at taking that part of the model into new york and london um, because what i'm finding is the investment bankers who are working with us on these major major transactions and their hearts are opening and their lives are you know they're, they're loving it and I, I want it to be the most prestigious thing in the world for investment bankers to work on major mandates just one a year for a minimum of two years together across their competitive boundaries with all proceeds going to support vulnerable clients i think that that model could actually you know generate tens of millions hundreds of millions of dollars for vulnerable client groups so so yes i'd argue out the replicability piece yeah you need a passion-led founder and somebody completely crazy but um all the, uh, the pieces of the puzzle, anybody can do that. I want to move next to some of the other business models that might be available to NGOs. Joe, can I start with social enterprises? It's been a pretty sexy space, uh, to use that term, for NGOs over recent years. But anecdotally, I hear that social enterprises were often amongst the most negatively impacted NGOs by covid I'm interested in your view about when a social enterprise is a good business model uh, and perhaps when it's not. Well, it's interesting you say that because the um, national longitudinal research that CSI is doing uh, in the first round of the survey um, on the pulse for the for purpose sector, we actually found that social entrepreneurs as a group were way more optimistic about their, um, uh, their forward trajectories than uh, other forms of uh, not-for-profit organisations. And that may just uh, be to do with the passion of social entrepreneurs, which Odette has just uh, demonstrated very aptly, acknowledging that she's a social entrepreneur of social business rather than social enterprise. Um, but I guess the other thing that I'd pick up from what Odette 
said is, you know, you are incredibly clear about what the purpose of this business model is. And that's one of the problems with social enterprise that I've seen over many years is that there are forms of social enterprise that do generate large amounts of revenue to reinvest into charitable purpose. And you, Odette just mentioned humanitics. I'm not suggesting that humanitics is making huge amounts, but as a as a not quite startup, it's doing very well. Um, and that is a model of social enterprise. But there are other models of social enterprise which are quite common uh, and popular in the domestic space, such as what we call employment-focused or work integration social enterprises, whose jobs are to run businesses in order to create employment and pathways to employment for people who are disadvantaged in the labour market. Now, their social purpose is baked into their business and that affects their cost structures. So they're constantly working with people who are in training, which means they're not as commercially competitive as the bakery or the cafe down the road. And it's very important when you start out with social enterprise development to be clear about what purpose you see this is um, fulfilling. And that's been a concern that I've seen in uh, traditional not-for-profits taking up the social enterprise model is they expect it to do everything. It's going to create unemployment. It's going to um, create services in the face of complete market failure. And it's going to generate huge amounts of resources to reinvest in other aspects of our work. That's not going to work. So you need to get really clear on what type of outcomes you're trying to produce and then be realistic about what's feasible within the business model. I love the way that you're putting that. And that's that knife edge of purpose and profit. And I've watched a lot of brilliant young founders and entrepreneurs who are sort of selling themselves nirvana. Uh, and they're not recognizing that at, at some point they may have to make very tough decisions um, about purpose versus profit. And, and it worries me greatly, and Paul and I have actually talked about this over the years, that they're selling to the investor community, I can make you double-digit returns and we can save the world. Um, and, and I fear for, for the social enterprise sector across the whole that, that at some point there will be a, um, a significant failure or a greenwashing version of, in the social enterprise space. Same way we saw it with microfinance when the big microfinance lenders, you know, listed on stock exchanges and decided they were going to make money from service delivery to the poor. I really worry about that. Um, and so couldn't agree with you more. And I think a huge amount of it is clarity at the outset. Um, you know, what are we actually, you know, what, what does success look like? You know, how are we trading between profit and purpose? How are we going to sit on that intersection? And how do we speak honestly about this? Um, and, and set expectations around this. Um, so the first hiccup that comes, everybody knows what the rules of the road are. Um, so, I, you know, couldn't agree with you more. It's enormously complicated. But once you get that clarity, you know what the incentives are, what success looks like, you know, there's huge opportunity there, I think. I agree. And I think um, at the risk of getting myself into hot water with at least two people in this conversation who I know have more expertise in the finance area than I do, I guess the other part of it, and I'm very interested in what you're doing, Odette, is um, transforming the conceptions of impact investors. So in the Australian context, similarly to the experience in the UK, what we've seen is um, a fairly strong push from finance first impact investors rather than impact first impact investors. And um, I think that there's a lot of you know, organisations such as yours or debt that are doing the education with the finance industry and um, building up their capability around what impact really looks like. Uh, and that's very important too. So what we find in the social enterprise space is that impact investors 
for the large part, and I am making generalisations, of trying to land pretty large pools of capital. And the kinds of uh, finance that small to medium social enterprises need is not that kind of capital. So we've got a mismatch between uh, supply and demand and, and, and lack of appropriate financial products. Uh, and that's another part of this. I think, uh, you know, going to your comment, Odette, about, um, about uh, the uh, microfinance industry, you know, and greenwashing and black cladding, all of these trends that we've seen where uh, parts of uh, the economy start to game the system. Um, we, we that requires education and it requires bold confrontation of when we're trying to use what are effectively capitalist mechanisms to create non-capitalist outcomes. Uh, we need to be explicit about that and we need to be respectful of what's needed across the board, but at the same time, you know, speak the truth to power. Uh, while, while we continue in a model where capital has all the power, um, we're not going to get the kinds of transformational um, uh, agendas that we need. I will now get off my revolutionary soapbox. Don't get off that. That's we're both we're saying on the same soapbox. Everybody on, <laughs> on this call is on that soapbox. You're right. There's two things I'd, I'd, I'd you know, nuance that around the edges. The first is um, traditional capitalist system finally is starting to shift to recognizing, you know, that it isn't all about, you know, the God Almighty, you know, uh, shareholder. Um, so we actually have now seeing a mainstreaming of this concept of multi-stakeholder. We're seeing a mainstreaming. You know, you only have to look at the Edelman Trust Barometer, um, which was just out in the last few weeks to see that the expectations, you know, so corporations are no longer able or, or rewarded from behave, behaving like sociopaths where they only have the, the shareholders' interest. So that's good. SDG 17, you know, partnership for the goals. Um, uh, ESG as a concept, environmental social governance, deeply embedded, you know, movement of hundreds of billions of dollars worth of capital, particularly led by the climate change activists. Um, so, so I think that's one thing I'd say. We have to, again, back to binaries, not think about um, in this binary of, you know, the capitalist structure, evil, pig dog, you know, uh, capitalists and the, the saints and the not-for-profit sector, we've got to find ways where we, we we connect. And I believe that those hybrids are coming and that there's a change in expectation. But to your bigger point, it's got to be clear right from the outset, what are we trying to achieve here? Um, and, and for business, it's about explaining and business is seeing it. If you don't behave well, you're not going to get an easy ride from your regulators. You're not going to get um, consumers. You're not going to attract the best staff. You're not going to keep them, you know, on and on and on it goes. So um, change is afoot, but clarity is really, really uh, important. I think those are great points. I think the other trend that affects NGO access to capital is merger and acquisition. And this tends to be quite a contentious point in the sector. So let's just talk about that briefly. Do more NGOs need to consolidate um, or is it not the solution that we think it is? Uh, so I think, again, context matters. There are some contexts in which absolutely mergers and acquisitions are going to add value and be really beneficial and you know, Paul's got uh, significant experience in this uh, context. That said, again, if we go back to the sort of universal assumption, one thing that troubles me is when I'm in, I hear it a lot when I'm in boardrooms and meetings about we've got too many not-for-profit organisations. That shouldn't be the reason why there's mergers and acquisitions. There should be mergers and acquisitions because a better uh, solution, a, bit, a better organisational solution can be produced because one or more entities get together or two or more entities get together. Um, and where I've seen it not work, um, and 
uh, I must acknowledge, I don't specifically research this area, but it comes up in a lot of the social enterprise research that I do. Where I've seen it not work is where there's so much focus on the um, financial model that there's been no attention given to integrating organisational cultures. Uh, and so then there's just a complete failure. You end up with um, organisations that really are not uh, cohesive, not working together well, and also where they lose their licence to operate on the ground. And that is really significant. I've seen a couple of examples of mergers where um, uh, where an urban-based organisation has merged with a rural or regional organisation and then all the decision-making, uh, you know, ends up in the capital city and that can end up being an absolute uh, dog's breakfast on the ground. Yeah, I agree with that. And actually there's a couple of things I just to amplify what you're saying, um, Joe. Um the first thing is just in the normal M&A space in the world that I'm operating in from our business, you know, one in three, you know, uh, M&A transactions fails um, uh, post-integration because of cultural issues. So one in three will be, you know, will be enormously successful and, and lifted one in three will fail. Um, and it's the same thing, but more and then I think, or a greater risk in the not-for-profit space because so much of the not-for-profit world is about passion, purpose. You know, people have been led into this work for a particular reason, particular connection to a client group. Um, so um, the second thing I'd say, just to re-emphasize your point, it's all about what's great for the service delivery for the client group. If, if the answer is there's better service delivery here, um, if we collaborate or merge, um, then of course the answer is great. And then it's about not, don't just look at the financial metrics, look at the, across the whole piece as you do with any M&A transaction um, and see if there's a better mousetrap, if you like, a better answer for this client group and this service delivery. So, um, but we are in a passion-led space. We're also in a resource-constrained space. Um, we know that M&A takes a lot of time and effort and energy, often falls apart just on ridiculous social issues like, you know, who wants to be on whose board? Um, and and so we have to think about facilitating and supporting this as one of the tools in the toolkit um, to continue to have an evolve evolving and healthy sector. Um, but it, I come back to localization. I, I think it would be an absolute tragedy if if um, we swept up some of these brilliant um, and you see it in the women's refuge space, space for instance. There's some brilliant service delivery down by small organisations. We mustn't lose that. Thanks for those insights. I want to move on to another issue that's been lurking in the background of our conversation so far, and that's the role of boards and non-executive directors in encouraging business model innovation and even mergers and acquisitions. As we've discussed before, directors can be the biggest barriers to exploring different forms of collaboration between organisations, including mergers and acquisitions. Do you think boards are doing enough to encourage NGO business model innovation and sector consolidation? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, boards are unpaid in the NGO space um, generally, so let's let's start with that. Um, often um, uh, they're on the board. Uh, there are some fantastic directors on boards of NGOs in this country. Actually, let me start there, and and I have I'm lucky enough to have some fantastic directors. But um, you've got to recognise that they are not often not subject matter expert, experts or domain experts, and they're often serving on a board out of to contribute to community or for passion. Sometimes, unfortunately, they're serving on boards because they're told this is the way to get into the board world. And I think that that's the most shocking thing to, to, to go on a board because you think it's good for your career, um, a not-for-profit board. Um, but um, are, are boards, not-for-profit boards, fully equipped? 
Um, corporate boards aren't fully equipped in my view. <laughs> Um, and um, so for what's happening in our world, it's brilliant directors, I say that again across the whole space, um, but we have to reckon that we have to recognise where we're working with limitation. Um, uh, uh, our boards are able to meet enough? Are they able to be resourced enough? Uh, are, they, do, are they able to understand what's happening in the space enough? You know, there are some, some conferences and resources out there, but again, you've got management teams, that, you know, they have to get information up to their boards on top of everything else they're doing. It's, it's, I'm, I'm less judgmental on that than others might be because I see how difficult the, and how complex and how also how much giving there is um, uh, by boards, but is there plenty of room for uh, improvement, more resourcing, higher level thinking? Yes, of course there is. You're absolutely right. Uh, directors in an NGO setting are usually unpaid and there can be huge expectations on them to perform a whole range of roles from governance to strategy and fundraising and so on. Another expectation especially of directors from the private sector, is that they will be able to lead discussions with management around business model innovation. Yet, in my experience, it can sometimes be those very board members with deep private sector experience who take the most conservative position on such uh, types of innovation. What's going on there? It's interesting. There's an incredible arrogance in the business community that, uh, that their skills translate automatically into the not-for-profit sector. And I think what happens is they often get into these situations and go, holy cow, this is more complicated than I ever understood. This is not just about return on capital and EBIT um, and business model innovation. This is about, you know, human social service delivery or, you know, ethical, gender, religious, God no, the international development sector, cultural, failed, failed states. You know, there's, there's so much complexity in the NGO sector and service delivery very different. Now, it doesn't mean that this, there aren't great skills in the business sector that can be brought to those tables, but I think that there is often you'll talk to directors who say, I came believing I had so much to teach and I ended up learning so much. Um, and um, so I just, just want to bookmark it on that. It, it is not about numbers. It's, about, it's, it's a different way of thinking about outcome um, completely. And so, and we're back to resource constraint, massive resource constraint that, that private sector directors aren't necessarily used to seeing. Uh, I might take it in a slightly different direction, but um, Paul, I've certainly heard in my research life many um, uh, leaders of not-for-profit organisations express that same concern, you know, that I brought um, business onto the board to bring their business skills, but they left their business skills at the door and brought their open heart, open bleeding hearts instead. Um, so I'm certainly aware of that as a trend. But I think what I would comment on uh, in terms of the sort of emergence of changing models is what um, we observe in a lot of the social enterprise research that we do is that governance is a major blocker um, to uh, in a, to innovation of business models, etc. And that. I think one of the things that's important, and I've got a paper which will hopefully be under review soon, looking at um, we actually need to break down what different not-for-profit governance cultures there are because they're not all the same, right? So there's a welfare. So we've done this research where we've identified a welfare mindset, 
a community development mindset and a social innovation mindset. And they each of those, I won't go into the detail, but each of those has quite discrete and distinct characteristics. So not every, uh, you know, not all, all not-for-profits are created equally or, or operate in a homogenous way. Um, and then when you introduce... Uh, you know, a desire to go in a new direction, to add social enterprise or whatever, you start to re uh, develop some real hiccups. And certainly in the social enterprise space, there's a lot of frustration, particularly among those social enterprises that are embedded within larger welfare organisations, that the boards just don't understand what's required for the flexibility of small to medium business units, um, you know, that are facing the market, operating within their larger welfare entities that are, you know, going back to the earlier metaphor, you know, they're the, the turning of the Titanic, if you like. So um, it, governance governance is a really substantial uh, challenge in any form of innovation, I imagine, but definitely in the context of social innovation. Yeah, can I, Rachel, I know you want to leap in, but I just want to just say one thing on that. You're so right about that. It's regulatory structure, which is still siloed. And actually, what we're talking about when we talk about new forms of financing or new models, um, and, you know, there are as many, you know, as, as there are stars in the sky, really, when you start to uncap your thinking, we have to get out of thinking siloed. So the regulatory and governance structures are still very siloed, which makes it incredibly difficult to create hybrid or unusual organisations. And the other thing I'd add to what you're saying, um, Joe, is there's a very limited tolerance for downside risk. Um, and 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 that's right because you know that sort of trendy agile fail fast in the you know the entrepreneurial sector which is when it's a, a profit led um, uh, piece of entrepreneurship it's fine to fail fast it's not fine to fail fast if you're actually out fooling around with people's lives um, or the lifeblood of community so um, uh, and these are uh, again under resourced organisations so there's there two two pieces to add to your governance piece which is the regulatory burden and then the the, the risk the low low downside risk tolerance thank you both we have covered so much in um, the last 30 minutes or so so to finish i wanted to ask you if there's one thing that ngos should take away from this discussion and do to help themselves to be fit for the future what would it be so I think the message that I've heard is really um, clarity of purpose and being driven by that. Um, so the clarity of purpose, of course, relates to the impact that organisations seek to have in the world, but also the um, pathways by which they're getting there. And I think if there's anything to take away, it's about that clarity and being able to surface some of the assumptions that we might be making that are divergent from each other in any organisational context. Yeah, that's. I, I agree with that. I, I would to take it to, to add to that. I'd say the other thing I guess I'd say to take away is there's no one right answer. Right? Don't stop trying. Right? You know, there's a million different ways to cut this cake and boy, does our world ever need it, you know, from traditional NGOs and philanthropy all the way through to the wildest, new, most innovative structures and, and um, uh, operations that are out there. Every single piece of this is needed right now. Um, so, um, so there isn't any one answer, but if you can figure out how to stitch together the knife edge of perfect, purpose and profit, boy, what impact that you can make. So, you know, it's, it's, a, it, it's worth the candle, if you like. It's, it's worth the, the, the effort. But, but all efforts, I think, are, are valid. And our world needs us all to stand together to, to, to make change right now. Audette, Joe, a fantastic conversation and some great advice. 
Be willing to innovate, but stay focused on your mission, and most importantly, on your beneficiaries. Thank you so much to both of you for being on the podcast today. Thanks for having us. Thanks. That was fun. I'm sorry it's finished. There's so much more to talk about. I hope you really enjoyed this second episode in the Goodwill Hunters Autumn Series on the NGO of the future. Look out for our next episode in the series, Exploring the Future of NGO Fundraising, with Sarah Davies and Leonie Valentine.